Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Drill, baby, drill, and drill now. That was the message, loud, clear, and frequently repeated from the rafters of the GLP Convention Center in Minnesota and from the top of the presidential ticket. We'll produce more energy at home. We will drill new wells offshore, and we'll drill them now. We'll drill them now. And the words were echoed by John McCain's pick for vice president, the Alaska governor, Sarah Palin. Americans, we need to produce more of our own oil and gas. And take it from a gal who knows the north slope of Alaska. We've got lots of both. Republicans, energy independence, and the environment will have those issues and much more this week on Living on Earth. So stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When Arizona Senator John McCain accepted the Republican nomination in St. Paul to be President of the United States, he promised to embark on the most ambitious national project in decades, bringing energy production home. We will drill new wells offshore, and we'll drill them now. We'll drill them now. My friends, we'll build more nuclear power plants. We'll develop clean coal technology. We'll increase the use of wind, tide, solar, and natural gas. We'll encourage the development and use of flex fuel, hybrid, and electric automobiles. And McCain says if Americans want to stop sending $700 billion every year for energy to unfriendly nations and protect the planet, they should vote Republican. Senator Obama thinks we can achieve energy independence without more drilling and without more nuclear power. But Americans know better than that. We must use all resources and develop all technologies necessary to rescue our economy from the damage caused by rising oil prices and restore the health of our planet. As a senator, McCain has repeatedly called for a mandatory cap on greenhouse gases to fight global warming, but that brief line about restoring the health of the planet is as close as he got to climate change and what was the biggest speech of his life so far. Living on Earth's Jeff Young joins me now. Hi there, Jeff. Now, hi, Steve. So, Jeff, you were in St. Paul. And uh, there, John McCain, the self-styled maverick, uh, who likes to remind voters that he stood up to his own party's leaders when it came to climate uh, change, uh, has a problem, right? Uh, He needed to mend fences with the party's base if he's going to turn out the conservative vote. And that sets up a rather tricky dance for him. How did his feet move? Well, uh, if it was a dance, I would say the, the, the leading partner at this point is the party's base, not Senator McCain. One of the big questions hanging over the McCain campaign all summer has been, is McCain moving Republicans toward action on climate change, or is the party pulling him the other way toward traditional support for oil and fossil fuels? And the answer is? Well, you know, we did hear Senator McCain talk about plans for clean energy, but he used the phrases oil, drilling, and nuclear energy 
10 times, the words climate change or global warming never passed his lips in the acceptance speech. In fact, all week, only one primetime speaker here at the convention used the phrase global warming, and that speaker was Joe Lieberman, who, of course, is not a Republican. As you pointed out, Senator McCain's platform does include a cap-and-trade system to cut greenhouse gas emissions. I've seen nothing to indicate he's changed his position. But what has changed, I think, is that there is now little emphasis on that. And that kind of rhetoric, I would argue, matters because the campaign, the convention, these are the tools that a candidate has to build a mandate for support for the platform. And I simply did not see that happening here. Now, Jeff, uh, there are a lot of stars in the Republican Party who take global warming pretty seriously. Uh, People like California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. What happened to them? Well, they just weren't here. Uh, They had pretty good excuses for their absences. Governor Schwarzenegger is in a a budget battle back in the state capitol. Florida's governor, Charlie Crist, another climate change champion in the party, he had to stay home to prepare for a hurricane. Their views, as a result, were not on display here. So instead, the big moments on energy came from speakers like uh, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. The right course is to pursue every source of energy security, from new efficiencies to renewables, from coal to non-CO2 producing nuclear, and for the immediate drilling for more oil off our shores. And I have... uh, I have one more recommendation for energy conservation. Let's keep Al Gore's private jet on the ground. He will lead us to energy independence so we can be free of foreign oil. And and he'll do it with an all-of-the-above approach, including nuclear power, and yes, Offshore oil drilling. Drill, baby, drill. (laughs) Drill, baby, drill. So there's a new chant, eh? Drill, baby, drill. Yeah, in fact, that uh, showed up the very next day on some T-shirts. But uh, wasn't Senator McCain opposed to offshore drilling not so long ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just mid-June that he changed his position on drilling, and that change has paid off for him politically. He seems to be in sync with a shift in public opinion. It also coincides with a pretty significant uptick in his fundraising. McCain is now by far the largest recipient of campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry, more than $1.5 million so far. And that's more than three times what Obama's taken from the industry. And I suspect that's helped get him back in good graces with the party's conservative base, huh? Oh, definitely. You know, I spent some time walking the floor here asking delegates what they think the energy priorities should be. And I definitely got the feeling that uh, conservative party members think that McCain has moved their way. Drill here, drill now, pay less. My name is Hollis Rutledge from South Texas. My name is June Burkhart. I'm from Willow, Alaska. We would like to see him come over and change his thoughts a little bit on opening Anwar so we can get the gas and oil reserves down to the people. He has not been um, has not been in favor of that, but now that uh, our uh, governor is going to become vice president, there may be some changes there. So, Jeff, what's the story here? Governor Palin seemed to toe the conservative line. 
Oh, yeah. And I think uh, Senator McCain's choice here of Sarah Palin really tells us a lot about his priorities. You know, he had a lot of people on the short list in consideration for vice president who had pretty strong records on addressing climate change, supporting alternative energy. And instead, he went with the Alaska governor who strongly supports expanding oil and gas drilling and who, frankly, has a spotty record on climate change. Jeff, we'll be back to you later. Let's hear now from Governor Palin's speech. Americans, we need to produce more of our own oil and gas and take it from a gal who knows the north slope of Alaska. We've got lots of both. Starting in January, in a McCain-Palin administration, we're going to lay more pipelines and build more nuclear plants and create jobs with clean coal and move forward on solar, wind, geothermal, and other alternative sources. Sarah Palin governs a state defined by its natural wealth, gold and zinc, forests, fish and caribou, as well as oil and gas. And perhaps most important, the state bearing witness to the strongest climate change effects, vanishing ice and eroding coastline. Joe Geldof is an attorney in Juneau and the Alaska Coordinator for Republicans for Environmental Protection. And we now turn to him to learn a little more about what kind of vice president Governor Palin would be on these important questions. Thanks for being here, Joe. Nice to be here. Alaska is a front line of climate change. Um, we have whole villages that are, are, are falling into the sea. People are having to leave them. Um, the sea ice is vanishing. What's Sarah Palin's record on climate change? Uh, you look at some of the documents, it appears that she thinks that this is uh, not a human uh, problem, not a human-caused problem. She, like virtually everyone in Alaska, acknowledges there are significant and, and widespread changes to Alaska in terms of the, the polarized, to the, to the permafrost, the impact on wildlife. I think she, like a lot of the politicians up here, they don't know exactly what the causal effect is, or they say they don't know, and they're very reluctant to uh, place blame, as it were, on um, human activities. Joe, uh, you follow Governor Palin's uh, career. How green a vice president do you think she would be? As I understand it, uh, when she defeated uh, Frank Murkowski for the governorship two years ago, she played hardball with the gas and oil companies. And what does that tell us about her? From from the point of view of, of corporate America, she's a renegade. It would be wrong to think she's some environmentalist who's um, against the oil and gas industry. This is a candidate as governor who really wanted to develop uh, Alaska's uh, gas and oil resources. But when it came to the taxation side... She wanted to tax uh, the oil, and she wanted to make sure, and did, uh, make sure that the uh, state of Alaska and the citizens up here got the, uh, substantially more revenue from their oil resources. And that put her in huge odds with people in London and Texas. Uh, Joe, what about the largest remaining temperate rainforest in the world? I'm referring, of course, to the Tongass National Forest, which is also, by the way, our nation's largest forest, national forest. How has uh, Governor Palin weighed in on the protection uh, for this forest? Well, she has been a a real breath of fresh air, particularly compared to the previous governor, who, uh, you know, just absolutely followed the forest products industry party line right down to the the end and wanted to accelerate cutting in the Tongas. In that sense, Sarah Palin has been much more like Theodore Roosevelt, who I mentioned, because he actually created uh, the Alexander... uh, 
archipelago forest reserve back in the day when he was president, and then it later became the, the Tongass. But uh, she's working and having her staff work on a sustainable basis, so they bring together environmental groups and uh, community uh, leaders and people from the forest service and forest products industry and try to reach some sort of consensus on small-scale logging to keep the, the few remaining saw mills open. But Sarah Palin has basically acknowledged the days of having these huge dissolving sulfite pulp mills are gone. Um, Joe, I think I, know, I, I thought I heard you compare her to Theodore Roosevelt. Well, at least on, on the timber stuff in the Tongas. So, Joe, is it fair to say, from your perspective, you'd see Sarah Palin in office an improvement over what the Bush administration has done in terms of environmental protection and natural areas and that sort of thing? She has demonstrated that she has an open mind, and she's, on the forestry issues, um, turned loose her state forester to work cooperatively with the Forest Service and communities and the environmental community. And there's, they've had some success. They're pulling old culverts out of old logging roads and allowing certain areas to return uh, to forests that were probably shouldn't have been logged but were logged in the heyday of you know, the, the big timber boom up here. She should get credit for that. Joe Geldhoff is an attorney in Juneau and the Alaska representative for Republicans for Environmental Protection. Thanks for taking this time with us today, Joe. Okay, good luck. Just ahead, just how green at home is the senator from Arizona. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Who in the weeks after Katrina were left to die while this government, instead of sending aid... Political conventions draw protesters and the liveliest crowds tend to demonstrate at the gathering of the party that holds the White House. And this year was no exception. While there were a few signs and some street theater during the Democratic gathering in Denver, there were full-scale marches and some spots of violence at the Republican event in St. Paul. And some of the demonstrators had the environment on their minds. Living on Earth's convention team caught up with a few of them. My name is Mina Learwood, and I'm from Minneapolis. I'm dressed up as a polar bear today. I've got my polar bear headdress and my face paint, my white outfit. And I'm very concerned about the vice presidential pick for presidential contender, McCain. She doesn't believe in global warming. She wants to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That's one of our places we like to live as polar bears. And she likes hunting, so I'm scared of her. I'm George Martin from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm a national co-chair of United for Peace and Justice, which is the largest anti-war coalition in the U.S. We, we have a campaign called No War, No Global Warming. You know, as we talk about ending nuclear weapons, it's the greatest threat to all of us here on Earth. And we haven't resolved the problem in terms of nuclear power. There is no verified, legitimized means of storage of nuclear waste in the United States. And at the same time, every nuclear power plant is potentially a nuclear bomb. My name is Colleen and I'm from Waukesha, Wisconsin. I'm out here today talking about America standing for everyone. We need to get back to making America strong. Alternate types of energy, um, no more oil, no drilling, no oil getting off of oil as soon and as quickly as possible. 
Those voices from the Twin Cities were recorded by our convention team, Bobby Bascom and Jeff Young. During this campaign, we've looked at John McCain's record as a national legislator in some degree of detail. But as part of Arizona's delegation to Congress since 1982, what's his record in terms of advancing energy and environmental protection on behalf of his state, with its vast public lands and national parks, including the Grand Canyon? Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet looks at the causes the would-be president took on at home in a state with 25% Indian land, a fast-growing population, and growing concerns over water. That's the creosote bush, and uh, when it rains, it's just like the best desert smell on the entire planet. Tina Beattie picks her way over rocky ground in the dramatic Superstition Mountains east of Phoenix. She grew up right near here. Now she's Arizona coordinator for Republicans for Environmental Protection. The great thing about the Superstition Mountains is that they're just incredibly majestic, just huge, massive rock structure. Um, Out here, you know, you have the saguaros and the ocotillos and the creosote and the Palo Verde and you know so it's all the beautiful plants of Arizona um, juxtaposed with you know kind of this rugged rockiness. Part of the reason Beattie could wander here growing up is that soon after he went to Congress John McCain following the lead of then Arizona Democrat Mo Udall helped pass the Wilderness Act of 1984. It protected one million acres of land in Arizona. You know as a kid you're not thinking about boy I hope some very good forward-thinking politician is protecting all of this for my kids. But as an adult, you know, that level of protection for this area, I I bring my 10-year-old stepson out here and uh, expose him to what he doesn't get just 20 miles away where we live. Not long after this wilderness was expanded, McCain helped Udall pass another major bill, the Arizona Desert Wilderness Act of 1990, protecting another 2.4 million acres. No fewer than 78 areas of wilderness were created under these two laws. McCain says when he went to Congress from the military, he was on the far right. But Democrat Morris Udall, who chaired the then House Interior Committee, reached out to him, inviting him to press conferences, treating him publicly with respect. In this oral history recorded for the University of Arizona, McCain says that taught him allies could be found in either party. He and I flew over or walked over or drove over huge amounts of of the state of Arizona when we were doing these wilderness bills and had tens of hearings that were long ones, I mean, so we could hear from everybody. That, That certainly had an impact on me. Those years also saw controversy over aircraft noise in the Grand Canyon. Rob Smith of the Sierra Club credits McCain with the law that returned a measure of peace to the iconic park. There are almost 100,000 aircraft flights of just tourist airplanes that rain noise down on the Grand Canyon. And it used to be they would fly everywhere, including all the way down to the river level, a mile below the rim. Every park really needs a senator to really defend it and make sure it gets the money and the protection it needs with all that kind of use. In his Phoenix office, Smith points to a wall map of Arizona that shows more than half the state is public land. The Sierra Club worked with McCain on land issues earlier in his career, but when Smith looks at the senator's whole record, what he sees is mixed. It's always worth asking and always worth talking to him about environmental issues, but you're never sure which one he's going to pick up on. If it's about the Grand Canyon, he's generally been pretty good. If it's about national park protection and other places, uh, his vote was you couldn't count on. 
when no one was doing anything, he was proposing higher miles per gallon for cars, which would save fuel. But when the key votes came in this last Congress last year, uh, he couldn't be found. The origin of the word Arizona is uncertain, but it's hard to ignore its similarity to the Spanish words for a dry, arid place, una zona arida. Arizona is the second fastest growing state in the nation. Americans and new immigrants are rushing to a sun-seared part of the country where water is scarce. Builders keep creating dreams in the desert, and each new household sticks its straw in the ground. It puts a lot of pressure on streams and on underground water. Coming up here, I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, I've been in the city for a long time, so... I kind of lost touch with being from the country. A rabbit sprints from mesquite to mesquite. Quail are hiding. Dr. Richard Adams stands at the pipe that marks his well, the source of water for a family of four that left Phoenix and moved to the country. So the idea that we would run out of water just never really crossed my mind. But that's what happened. Adams was home from work. He was watering a plant when the hose pressure weakened, then was gone. This beautiful adobe custom home and no water. It's kind of, I think, an epiphany is what it's called. It's kind of like when I heard that uh, my mom was was ill. and Actually, I saw her, and uh, she came up, and I was in residency, and I put a chest X-ray up, and I saw her, you know, and I just went, whoa, (laughs) this is real. That was the kind of feeling. Adams called a well driller. It proved difficult work. In the end, it took a month and a half to hit reliable water. But Adams isn't surprised that back down in Arizona's population center, Phoenix, water is not yet a front-burner issue. When I was down there, everybody had a pool. I certainly spent a lot more time cleaning it than I did swimming in it, you know. And Anyway, I just, did, I just took water for granted, you know, and, and I don't do that anymore. And will this experience rise to the level of voting issue in November? Yeah, I, the environmental issues is going to play into uh, how I vote. Absolutely. The McCains own a home just over the hill from here in Cornville, Arizona. So Dr. Adams assumes that the senator understands the fragility of water. But he doesn't say if McCain will get his vote. John McCain hasn't focused much on Arizona water issues. But Tina Beattie says she doesn't fault him for that. She says it's a concern that would have to rise up from Arizonans themselves. So far, it hasn't. We're probably the only Western state that hasn't seen water restrictions, which is a little nutty. Um, I've never not been able to water my lawn or anything like that. Our water's cheap, um, so we don't really have a financial incentive to conserve. But the Sierra Club's Rob Smith says it is incumbent on leaders to recognize that water use in the state is unsustainable and to conserve it for people and wildlife, even if the issue isn't front and center for voters. And though many water decisions are made at the local level, Smith believes a senator could have done more. McCain has expressed some concern and interest in maintaining streams, but really hasn't proposed strong measures to really preserve those stream flows the way we think they need to be. For instance, a designation such as the Wild and Scenic River could maintain stream flows along a stretch of river. That's been proposed for the Upper Verde River, but that bill has not been introduced. That's something a senator could have done. Senator McCain has been outspoken on energy policy, leading on climate change earlier this decade. His approach emphasizes nuclear power. 
This being mining country, silver, gold, and copper interests have wielded enormous political influence in Arizona for decades. The Grand Canyon itself lies surrounded by rocks rich in uranium, the raw material for firing nuclear power plants. Rob Smith and others point out that's a subject McCain has not been eager to discuss. He's advocating nuclear energy without realizing that a lot of the uranium for that might come from mines that are proposed right next to the Grand Canyon uh, that have caused great health problems on the Navajo Reservation and that we have no place to store the waste. That issue has been of particular interest to Arizona Democratic Congressman Raul Grijalva, who occupies Mo Udall's old seat. He hoped he might be able to work together with McCain to keep uranium mining away from the Grand Canyon. You know, in four years, the... 11 permits for mining around the Grand Canyon went from 11 permits to over 1,000. They're just expedited, given to people immediately. The difference is here that it's the Grand Canyon. And we felt that this, the icon of our natural national parks, a world icon, seven wonders, national wonders of the world, is eminently threatened by this uranium mining. And so we're not saying that you can't mine for uranium in some other piece of public land. We are saying this is sacred for a lot of reasons, and we want to protect it. But McCain hasn't addressed the new uranium claims near the National Park. Congressman Grijalva says he also wanted to work with McCain on the extensive pollution left behind by old gold, copper, and uranium mines in the West, and to make sure the same thing doesn't happen with the new mining boom now underway. Those reform efforts were thwarted by a Democrat, not a Republican. That was Senator Harry Reid of Nevada. But Grijalva says Senator McCain should be more forthcoming about where he stands on Western mining. You know, running for the highest position in this nation and the world, his attitude about the protection of the Grand Canyon, his attitude about how we balance public lands, resource protection with resource extraction, I think those are valid issues that he needs to talk about. John McCain has not prioritized the pollution and health problems that, especially for Indian tribes, are part of the mining legacy here. But many in Indian country know McCain as a friend, someone who helped carve tribal autonomy into American law, who helped tribes set their own environmental standards and become economically self-sufficient. Visitors enjoy the lobby in the five-star Wild Horse Pass Resort on the Gila River Indian Reservation. Attorney Steve Healy is Potawatomi and has long represented the tribes here. He also worked with John McCain for years in Congress. He says in the 1980s, the Environmental Protection Agency still hadn't worked out its relationship with tribes, and that meant problems on tribal lands. So you had these holes, and if we take Arizona as an example, 25% of the state of Arizona was under the control of Indian tribes, and those 25% of the lands weren't receiving the level of protections that they were entitled to. As chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, John McCain helped tribes get the power and funding to set their own environmental standards, Healy says. McCain was also committed to helping tribes develop businesses on reservations in the days before widespread Indian gaming. 
Well, Senator McCain was very interested in addressing issues regarding economic development in Indian country. There was a lot of poverty, overwhelming infrastructure needs, and so Senator McCain focused on trying to provide incentives for businesses to locate on reservations and to hire natives to work in those facilities. And Steve Healy says the work was always a collaboration of Democrats and Republicans on the committee. That was something that was made very clear to those of us on the staff that there was no partisanship and it wasn't even bipartisanship. We worked together on a nonpartisan basis. Not everyone feels McCain has delivered on native issues. Anthropologist Taylor Scudder at the California Institute of Technology worked for the Navajos on a complicated issue involving the Hopis, grazing, and coal mining. Thousands of Navajos were forced to leave their homes. McCain was very much aware of the fact that it caused a lot of hardship. But there was no major effort in the legislation, either at the time or subsequently, to correct the poverty that had been caused by the relocation. Arizona, like the rest of the country, is becoming more Latino. Of course, many Hispanic families have been here since the 18th century, but others are just arriving. And in Arizona, they face some of the fiercest anti-immigrant sentiment in the country. Estamos uh, diciéndole que tenga mucha cautela en la 19 Avenida y Greenway. Here, Morning Drive host and immigrant advocate Elias Bermudez advises listeners to avoid a certain intersection where a raid is just now taking place. Uh, se está juntando por ahí oficiales del sheriff con sus patrullas. Uh, parece que probablemente tengan algún operativo. John McCain has not been part of the many anti-immigrant proposals in Arizona. In fact, quite the opposite, says Bermudez. He has been for us, and, and, and he has fought very hard in the Senate. He has joined hands with Ted Kennedy. He was criticized heavily by his party for doing so. Bermudez notes that McCain worked together with Massachusetts Democrat Ted Kennedy to craft law that would have given immigrants a path to citizenship. Critics have even called him Juan McCain. And even at the risk of losing his nomination, he was the person who said... Yeah, we must deal with the border problems. We must secure our borders. But we also need to deal with the 12 million people who are here, who are children of God. McCain has since pulled back from his own bill, disappointing some supporters, but Bermudez will vote for him. The majority of Latinos here, as elsewhere, are expected to vote for Barack Obama, in part because nearly all the anti-immigrant proposals have come from Republicans. But Bermudez says, don't think Latinos vote on a single issue. We are very much interested in saving this planet. Uh, I come from a very small town in Mexico where we still depend on the rain to, to plant our crops. And, and, and it's getting harder and harder to, uh, to plant those crops because the rains are late or when they do come, they come in a devastating form instead of, of the way that we need them. So, so, so we do have all the other issues the same as every other American. Bermudez and other McCain supporters like Tina Beattie of Republicans for Environmental Protection say they respect the candidate for addressing the environmental issues he supports and for doing so despite sometimes paying a price within his party. I think Senator McCain is, is where he is because there's a lot of Republicans in this nation who feel compelled by these issues. They hunt, they hike, they have children. 
Um, they want clean air. They want clean water. It's not foreign to them as Republicans. And I think that Senator McCain's popularity and where he is today speaks to the fact that he's he's in tune with more constituents than he gets credit for. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Arizona. We'd like to hear from you. Tell us how you see the candidates stacking up when it comes to issues of sustainability and environmental protection. You can email us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. And if you have a story idea about the elections, please click on Story Ideas on our website, www.loe.org. You can also hear our program anytime or get a download for your audio player. That's www.loe.org. Just ahead, the GOP and its energy platform. You're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Republicans have traditionally been considered to be the political party that's friendliest to business, and the platform adopted at the convention that nominated John McCain broadly calls for more energy investment. And it declares that alternative energy sources such as solar, wind, geothermal, and hydropower, quote, must enter the mainstream. But just how open is John McCain and the Republican Party to the development of new energy enterprises? Joining me now to shed light on what energy investors want from policymakers is Michael Hoffman. He manages investments in conventional and renewable energies for Riverstone Holdings, LLC, a private equity firm with $15 billion under management. Michael Hoffman, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Now, both Democrats and Republicans are doing a lot of talking this year about the importance of investing in renewable energies. Um, Tell me, you run perhaps the biggest renewable energy fund in the world. Just how big is this alternative renewable energy business right now, and how big could it get in the future? The amount of spending in a year, in 2007 dollars, in the conventional energy business worldwide is about 800 billion dollars and it's about 200 billion for renewable energy. The conventional energy business is only growing at like 3 or 4% per annum and the renewable energy business interestingly enough is growing in excess of 20 25% depending upon what area you're talking about. And if it continues to grow at the 20 to 25% rate, it'll it'll take a while for it to be as big as conventional energy, but it will eventually get there if if the pace continues. Now The Republican platform supports ending America's addiction to foreign oil through more oil drilling, more nuclear power plants, and a long-term energy tax credit for renewable energy sources. Um, How does the investment community view this platform? Well, I think in general, uh, positively. I mean, it's a little bit like motherhood and apple pie. Of course, everybody wants energy independence. But what the Republicans and Democrats have done is both spoken about the need for uh, renewable fuels uh, and renewable power. But the details of what each 
the Democrats and Republicans are arguing for is not really in the party platforms and, quite frankly, uh, changes on a pretty consistent basis. At one point, it looked as though uh, the McCain campaign was embracing global warming concerns and therefore uh, uh, really focused on carbon cap-and-trade programs. Uh, It's not as clear at this point, and he picked a a vice presidential candidate who doesn't even believe in global warming as a serious threat. So uh, it's not clear where uh, the Republican uh, uh, platform uh, is on some of these issues. Now, the language of the Republican platform on climate change says specifically uh, we can and should address the risk of climate change based on sound science without succumbing to the no-growth radicalism that treats climate questions as dogma. They are particularly silent, though, on the question of how they would do it internationally or even at home in terms of a cap-and-trade program or taxes. Um, What's your reading of that? I think they're hedging their bets. You've got different wings of the party saying different things. You've got uh, somebody like Governor Schwarzenegger, who in California has taken a very aggressive stance towards uh, trying to deal with climate change and has put in place at the state of California level a requirement that 33 percent of all power that the utilities are run on is from renewable sources. Uh, others, like the governor of uh, Alaska, is obviously not so sure that that's a problem. So I think they're trying to capture both ends of the the spectrum in in their uh, working draft on the platform. So policy-wise, in your view, what's the best-case scenario for investors? What would your energy platform be? I guess our energy platform would be developing the transmission grid you need to deliver alternative energy, whether it's wind or solar, to the places where you need it. That's one of the biggest bottlenecks. On the fuel side, you need really specific mandates in place and incentives in place that people can rely on. And so I think there are some strategies that can be taken both on the fuel side and on the power side to maximize the success of renewables. You know, I think the investment community is looking for certainty to the extent that there are real incentives in place that extend for a period of time, that people can count on the development of new energy resources, whether they're nuclear or renewable. That's what Wall Street wants, certainty. And what about cap and trade? Cap and trade is a, is a very interesting question. No, nobody's building a wind farm or a solar farm based on cap and trade, but they are debating whether or not to build a coal-fired plant because it could be very costly. Cap-and-trade, though, will help elevate the competitive costs for non-renewable energies, which makes renewable energy more competitive. The trick about cap-and-trade is where do the credits go? The devil's in the details. What is the cap-and-trade legislation going to look like? And until you know that, it's kind of hard to see who the winners and the losers are. Michael Hoffman is the Managing Director of Riverstone Holdings, LLC, and co-author of the new book, Green, Your Place in the New Energy Revolution. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. And from the wishes of Wall Street now to the advice John McCain has been hearing. James Woolsey was a senior arms control diplomat during the Reagan administration and head of the CIA during the first years of the Clinton administration. He now serves as an energy and foreign policy advisor to the McCain campaign when he's not tending to an energy venture fund he recently joined. Uh, Mr. Woolsey, John McCain is at odds with the White House in wanting a carbon cap and trade system. What's his thinking? 
One of the reasons John McCain is a supporter of um, carbon uh, cap-and-trade, mandatory cap-and-trade system, unlike the Bush administration, uh, is that he takes climate change really seriously, and he believes that a cap-and-trade system is something that will let the market work to help us find the better solutions, but at the same time exert overall pressure on uh, reducing the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere. In the Republican platform, there is no mention of cap-and-trade. Well, uh, I think uh, John McCain's commitment to this is quite clear and solid. Uh, He actually developed this concern during the 2000 campaign as a result of dialogue with some environmentalists and environmental groups. And he thought about this a lot. He went back after he lost in 2000 and worked with uh, his friend Joe Lieberman, and they came up with McCain-Lieberman and uh, saw, unlike the administration, that it really had to be uh, mandatory in order to work. Uh, I don't think anyone should doubt his commitment to moving forward and moving forward smartly with a a mandatory uh, cap-and-trade system to reduce carbon emissions. So let's look at the Republican platform on the question of more uh, drilling, uh, more energy independence. Uh, It reads, and I quote, We support accelerated exploration drilling and development in America from new oil fields off the nation's coast to onshore fields such as those in Montana, North Dakota, and Alaska. We oppose any efforts that would permanently block access to the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Now, as I understand it, Senator McCain is opposed to drilling in Anwar. He uh, is opposed to drilling in uh, Anwar, but uh, I don't think he is in favor of a permanent blockage. Uh, He wants to be able to uh, examine the issue. Uh, He did re-examine his position on offshore drilling here some months ago and determined that the technology had changed sufficiently since the Santa Barbara spill of now nearly 40 years ago. So um, he came to the conclusion that if the adjoining state was willing, then uh, the federal government shouldn't be a bar to the offshore drilling. But he has not uh, made that determination with respect to Anwar. Let's talk about nuclear power. Um, Senator McCain, the Republican platform, very excited about nuclear power. And frankly, I'm wondering if, if the senator is more interested in nuclear than he is in wind, solar and other renewable forms of energy. Uh, I don't think he's more interested in nuclear, but he does uh, believe that we are going to need some added uh, baseload electricity, 24-7 electricity, uh, along uh, with what we can do with uh, renewables. Renewables, uh, two leading ones, wind and solar, are, of course, intermittent. Uh, One operates in the daytime and one generally at night and at dusk. Uh, But uh, John McCain's a strong supporter of solar and uh, wind, geothermal, hydro, and uh, wants to do everything possible possible that one can with those. Now, Jim, looking at the Republican platform, there's this line saying that the Republicans, quote, firmly oppose efforts by Democrats to block the construction of new coal-fired power plants. No strategy for reducing energy costs will be viable without a commitment to continued coal production and utilization. And yet when you talk to people on Wall Street, they say the regulatory picture for coal and the question of of, uh, what uh, constraints will be on carbon make it very difficult to invest in coal. Well, states are deciding these issues for themselves, and there have been a number of coal-fired power plants stopped, but not all. And the key thing here is to clean coal up because we need to do it for the power plants that exist now as well as for any that may need to be uh, added. And uh, John McCain has said he wants to spend about $2 
$2 billion a year over the next several years to perfect as quickly as possible the technology of sequestering the carbon from coal-fired power plants so that we could continue to use them as much as we uh, have to, uh, taking account of the fact that we are also at the same time going to be pushing hard for uh, moving to renewables such as solar and wind and geothermal and uh, energy efficiency such as uh, moving uh, away from uh, using so much electricity in existing buildings. McCain campaign advisor Jim Woolsey was President Clinton's first director of the CIA and also served the Reagan administration as a senior diplomat. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Steve. The Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and St. Paul played host to the Republican National Convention. In addition to some 900 lakes, the cities are renowned for their uncommon friendliness. Minnesota nice. But Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports that they'd also like to be known for Minnesota green. It's before dawn on the Minneapolis side of the Mississippi. Pillsbury and Gold Medal Flower still have mills on either side of the river here. They turn off their electric signs as the sunrise turns the sky pink and purple. Mayor R.T. Ryback, who was voted fittest mayor in America two years ago, meets with a group of 50 bikers for a 5K bike ride down the mighty Mississippi. Morning, welcome everybody. Mayor Ryback's going to take you on a ride at 640. No, I have a, I have a breakfast I have to go to at 730, so I'm going to actually go fast. And are you guys ready? Bikers, ready! Let's go! Mayor Ryback rides one of the 1,000 freewheeling bikes brought into the city this spring in preparation for the convention. Visitors and locals sign up for the program with a credit card, but are only charged if they don't return the bike at the end of the day. We have 100 miles of bike trails within the city, and putting more bikes on through the bike share will, I believe, uh, create more of a bike-friendly city. The Minneapolis Convention Center, where delegates met and mingled during the day, is 10 miles from the XL Energy Center in downtown St. Paul, where they reconvene each evening for the serious business of democracy. The trip is not exactly bikeable for most delegates in their suits or high heels. Joanna Burgos is press secretary for the Republican National Convention. We do have shuttles that will shuttle people from their hotels to, to the Excel Energy Center. We do have a number of cars as well, but every car that we do have is hybrid or flex fuel. And the, the DNC is encouraging people to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, have you talked with any about actually the, the process of coming here and their travel to get here? We have a number of uh, realistic environmental initiatives that our delegates and our, our visitors will see once they enter Excel. Some of those realistic plans included 300 recycling containers at the convention. But when it came to actually using them, some people didn't quite seem to know how they work. I asked a staff member how to recycle a plastic plate. Can I recycle this? I don't even know. If, oh, they're there. But uh, that's plastic bottles, paper, and aluminum. So this one? Garbage, I think. I have no idea. The RNC focused a lot of attention on greening their day-to-day operations. They use recycled office furniture and carpeting, as well as wind and solar power. Again, Joanna Burgos. We're using a lot of biodegradable materials. Our banners are biodegradable. We're trying to use, you know, digital in whenever we can instead of paper. From the beginning, everything we've looked at, it's been, how can we make this more green? 
In the trendy neighborhood of uptown Minneapolis, a group of volunteers led by Maude Lavelle hit the streets to spruce up the place by picking up trash. Um, we kind of have this huge effort today that involves um, business owners. There's one of them right there painting a sign. He owns a local artist gallery. But cleaning up the neighborhood isn't just about putting on a nice face for the Republican delegates. Lavelle says it's just good for business. You know, a long-term customer or a new visitor is not going to come to a business that looks disheveled. The perception of litter is unkept and unsafe. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Bill Frothinger is out with his wife and two daughters sweeping up trash near a bus stop. Uh, finding a lot of cigarette butts, typical debris, uh, wrappers, candy wrappers, pop cans. And uh, so we're just getting that stuff off the street and making things look uh, that much better. To keep things clean. Yeah, it's looking good. And it's a beautiful day, too, so we like it. So with local efforts and the good environmental choices made by the RNC, Minnesota Nice might also claim the title Minnesota Green. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in St. Paul, Minnesota. So let's bring back Living on Earth's Jeff Young for some final thoughts on the week he spent with the GOP in the Twin Cities. Hey there, Jeff. Oh, yeah, you betcha, Steve. <laughs> trying to blend in here in Minnesota. <laughs> okay, now, uh, all right, how do you sum all this up? You know, what struck me is is this shift in tone when it comes to energy and environment issues. Instead of using this convention to, I don't know, appeal to moderate swing voters concerned about climate change, uh, eager to see the country move toward cleaner energy, well, this has largely been a showcase for the traditional Republican energy priorities. It's, it's as if the, the gravitational pull of the Republican Party base is just too great, even for McCain the Maverick to withstand. Now, of course, McCain supporters like James Woolsey and uh, Senator Joe Lieberman insist that their candidate is still committed to addressing climate change. Though we heard little, very little of that message from the podium and from the delegates uh, here in St. Paul this week. The energy message here boiled down to a simple three word chant. Drill, baby, drill. Okay, Jeff, now you spent a week with the Democrats in Denver and another week with the Republicans in St. Paul. They both talked a lot about energy. What can we expect from them now? We know the Democrats are having their own internal struggle on energy. They're trying to appease voter concerns on uh, high gas prices, trying to smooth things over with Democrats from coal and oil states. And both parties are pushing this all-of-the-above energy message. They want to be the ones who voters think, ah, those folks have the right balance. But if you look just beyond that all-of-the-above slogan, you see a pretty stark difference here. Uh, Despite Senator McCain's uh, actions on global warming in the past, and he does have a strong record here, the Republican message increasingly is one that puts the emphasis on expanding oil drilling, expanding nuclear power. Support for alternative energy and conservation is falling farther down on that agenda. Democrats largely view additional drilling as the small part of an energy strategy that instead emphasizes green jobs, the potential uh, for renewable energy. So I think the battle lines are pretty clear here, and we're going to see that fight on the campaign trail certainly over the next 60 days, and we're going to see it in Congress in the next few weeks as this uh, spills over onto Capitol Hill. Living on Earth's Jeff Young on the road home to D.C. from St. Paul and the Republican Convention. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I think you got your work cut out for you back on Capitol Hill. Figure out all that maneuvering. Good luck. Uh, Thanks, Steve.
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Clavoni. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Special thanks this week to PRI's Heidi Schultz. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.